Coming up this hour, The Bear on KCRW Berlin. It's the show that gives you a front row seat to an evening of great storytelling recorded live in Berlin. On today's program, the second in a two-part show on the topic alone, stories about being a fish out of water. That's up next. Stay tuned. Welcome to The Bear on KCRW Berlin. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Each month, The Bear hosts an event where people are invited to share stories centered around a certain theme. And each month, we bring you some of our favorite stories from the evening. Today's show is the second in a two-parter on the theme alone, stories about being a fish out of water. The true personal stories you'll hear tonight were recorded on June 14th at Maschinenhaus in Kulturbrauerei in Prenzauerberg. Berlin musician Felix Kommel performed music live. The first story on tonight's show comes from Fabian Lang. It's called Eggplant of Solitude. So there he was, standing right in front of me, with his big <clears throat> bare hands holding my face looking straight at me and saying, I miss your beautiful big blue eyes. I know they're there, but I can't see them. This was my grandfather standing mere inches from my face, unable to see me. Five months after that time, he died. My grandfather was 95 when he passed away three and a half years ago. His name was Ernest, and he was this big, wide-shouldered bear of a man, and he had these full lips and a big nose and these intelligent eyes that were brown and piercing, and they didn't miss a thing. But I think the thing about my grandfather that I loved the most was his deep and very sonorous, calming voice. He was from Mauritius, and even though he lived in the United States for over 40 years, he never lost his very thick, French accent. And we had a very close bond. I visited him probably every summer uh, of my life. And over those times, I learned a lot of things from him. One of those things, I would say, was resilience and perseverance. Every single morning of his life, with his breakfast, he did a crossword puzzle. And I was yay high when I first saw him do them, and then I was 28 by the time that he passed away, so I saw him do these crossword puzzles a lot, and he was, he'd be lost in them, and he'd be just, you wouldn't even say hi and good morning to you, you're just so focused. And he did these, even up until the time that his eyesight was going away, and he got this huge magnifying glass that made the words this big, so that he could still do his crossword puzzle. He didn't want his mind to go to mush, to, to just sort of lay there doing nothing, even though he couldn't see very well. He persevered through that. And over these summers, I also learned, uh, pardon me, we also had a lot of traditions grow between us. And one of those was cooking. And there was one dish in particular that we made every single time, without a doubt. And that was eggplant parmesan. <laughs> and my grandfather was trained as an engineer. So everything was methodical, slow, precise, done to the exact grain of salt, to the exact herb. You could not miss a beat. So these cooking moments between us were part beautiful joy because I had so much fun spending time with my grandfather. 
And the other side was me just really reining in my patience. And it was really wonderful, though, at the same time. And I would be slowly cutting, cutting the aubergine. And he would say, Mais Fabienne, c'est pas comme ça que tu coupes les aubergines. That's not how you cook, cut the aubergines. And I would go on to the mushrooms. Mais non, mais Fabienne, mais c'est quoi ça? C'est pas comme ça que tu coupes les champignons. It's not how you cook the mushrooms. Cut, cut the mushrooms. But we made it through, and it took a long time. But the eggplant in the end, the eggplant parmesan, it... It had this consistency of softness from the cooked mushrooms as well as the aubergine. But then it also had a crunch to it because the aubergine had been deep fried in breadcrumbs. And it looked like this glazed brown cake with a reddish tint. And the aroma that filled the entire house was that of Mediterranean herbs and cooked tomatoes. And for me, the sound of the eggplant parmesan, it wasn't it slowly bubbling in the oven. It was the sound of my grandfather's voice. Fabienne, c'est bon, on va laisser ça tranquille, on va passer du temps par là-bas. It's okay, just let it cook, we'll go over here now and relax. It felt like home. But when he died three and a half years ago, I stopped cooking the eggplant parmesan. But I am my grandfather's granddaughter, as he used to say. And much in his similar adventurous spirit that at the age of 84, he left everything that he knew, moved across the country to build a house from scratch. I did a similar thing. And eight months ago, I left everything that I knew, and I moved here to Berlin. I was alone. I didn't know anyone. I meandered the streets, lost, disorientated, listening to a garbled language I didn't, and to this day, quite frankly, don't really understand. <laughs> looking at signs that I couldn't read, not being able to partake in conversations, feeling so utterly alienated and so miserably alone. And there was one day, one of my lowest days here, I found myself in a supermarket, walking down the neon-lit aisles. And I had my shopping cart in hand, and as I was going down these aisles, ingredients starting, started to fill it up. And they were quite particular ingredients. I wasn't paying attention to this. This was quite a subconscious moment. And I then went back to the soulless little apartment that I had at the time in this tiny little kitchen. And as I started slowly chopping aubergines and then chopping mushrooms, preparing the cheese, I heard a voice behind me. Et Fabienne. Tu n'as pas encore allumé le four, mais qu'est-ce que tu fais? You haven't preheated the oven. What are you doing, Fabienne? Mais, mais c'est pas assez de sel, mais qu'est-ce que tu fais? That's not enough salt. What are you doing? And even though I was being scolded for not doing the recipe correctly, a huge grin spread across my face. My grandfather was there with me. I wasn't alone. And I don't understand how the universe works, how God operates, if there is one. But I know now that there is something beyond. And my grandfather is watching upon me. And even though I can't physically see him, much like he could not see me at the end of his life, I know he's here with me. And I'm not alone. You just heard Fabian Long and her story, Eggplant of Solitude.
The next story on tonight's program is called Another Country. It comes from Terrence Mickey. Note that the story contains language that some may find offensive. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I befriended um, Melanie in university, and we became friends over one book, James Baldwin's Another Country. And we were both would-be writers, and we both loved our English professors. So at, the, at graduation, when she invited me to come live with her in New Orleans, uh, in her grandparents' house for $75 a month, I thought it was a no-brainer. So I moved uh, into Melanie's grandparents' house, and Melanie was mixed race, and I was the only white person in Algiers, New Orleans, on Newton Street. And we had kind of the caretakers of the neighborhood on either side of us, Mr. Joe and Miss Leotha. And I remember Mr. Joe, I had a flat tire on my bike, and he offered to kind of help me repair my bike. So I went on the bike, and Melanie asked me, what'd you do today? And I said, oh, Mr. Joe, he helped me repair my bike, and he bought me an ice cream cone. <laughs> and she said, you let a grown man who's a stranger buy you an ice cream cone? And I was like, yeah, why not? She's like, she's like I have to look out for you, Terrence. And... Um, <laughs> And uh, meanwhile, like, Mr. Joe was really looking out for me because my bedroom was right next to his porch. So he'd be sitting out there in the mornings in his underwear, and he would just wake me up, and like, Terrence, Terrence, you awake? You awake? Literally tapping on my window. <laughs> and um, and I, I got my first job, at, like, a couple weeks after I arrived at Pat O'Brien's, which is a bar in the French Quarter that serves the hurricane. And you have to... And enter on one side on Royal Street and exit on Bourbon Street. And I was hired as a bouncer. <laughs> take it, take it in, take it in. Um, very intimidating. And my shift was nine at night till five in the morning. So I would ride my bike to the ferry at Algiers Point and take it across the Mississippi River into the French Quarter. And the very, very tip of Algiers Point was a white enclave called Old Algiers. Um, and when I would ride my bike, there would be neighborhood kids that would chase me and throw bottles at me and call me white bitch. So it was a very terrifying bike ride to go from my house to the ferry, not getting pinged in the head. I didn't mind white bitch because that came my nickname between Melanie and I. Um, <laughs> but, it, but it was tough. And so the first night in the job, I'm sitting there on Bourbon Street, and my fellow bouncer is from Louisiana State University. And he's kind of curious. I'm from New York, New Jersey, a northerner. You know, why did I come down here? And we get around to the point of kind of where I live. And I'm, I'm naive at this point of like, the only New Orleans I know is from Streetcar Names Desire and Confederacy of Dunces. So I'm very, very green. And I say I'm living in Algiers. And he kind of gives me an expression that in hindsight I realize I should have paid attention to. And he says, I'll give you a ride home after work. And at five in the morning, I'm just grateful for a ride home. So he got off an hour after me, and he says, wait in Cafe Du Monde, and I'll pick you up. And so he, he, I'm waiting there, drinking a cup of coffee, and he walks in, and he's got a gun uh, a holster on the outside of his, of his jacket. And I know you think all Americans carry guns, but for a northerner from New Jersey, I had never seen a gun before. So I was really disturbed and shocked, and... I got in the car with him, and we're driving uh, across the bridge to, to Algiers, and he puts the gun like between us on the seat. 
And he says, you know, you're going to need this if you live with the, and he says the word that kind of ignorant white people say, or racists who were born racists say. And I knew in my mind, like, I don't want to go to my house. I want to go, like, somewhere beyond my house when he drops me off and hopefully never see him again. And it was definitely an initiation into what I'd never experienced in my household, growing up in New Jersey, going to school with Melanie. And um, I didn't really know what to do with it. So I came home, told Melanie what happened, and she's like, don't get in the car with any more white people, okay? <laughs> Just do not. And, um, and I have this experience in New Orleans where I'm most often the only white person in the context, because Melanie kind of brings me everywhere. And I'm on the phone one day, talking to my kind of childhood uh, friend's mother, and she's saying, oh, are you going to watch the trial today? And I was kind of like, the trial? And she's like, OJ's trial. And Melanie and I had been talking about, like, you know, everything that was preceding it to what was happening, and it was really part of our kind of daily discussion. But I'd kind of blanked out on, like, the day of the, of the trial. And it was the first time a public event had ever, like, directly impacted my life because... Riding my bike from my house to the ferry, depending on whether OJ was guilty or innocent, was going to be a very drastic day for me. And I felt horrible that I was hoping he was innocent because I, I didn't want, uh, I, I knew what would happen if he was found guilty, just from paying attention and talking with Melanie. So you know the verdict. I ride my bicycle. And I was on the ferry ride going across the Mississippi. And there was three kind of businessmen kind of um, who had, were either going to work or coming from work kind of dressed in suits. And then there was two young um, African-American boys. And they were just up in these two men's faces, screaming, OJ, 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 like this close to their face. And I thought, you know, I knew something had shifted and like throwing a bottle at me and calling me white bitch was kind of low-hanging fruit. But the kind of anger and the kind of uh, defiance kind of like in their face. And, and Melanie was really just, you know, she, she just was heartbroken about what had happened because she's like, they, in sense, feeling like it's a win when OG is a superstar and a celebrity and kind of beyond the law. And um, things in New Orleans started to get even more intense. And they kind of reached a peak when in the French Quarter, which is a very popular tourist spot with a lot of shopping, shopkeepers put on their door, tourists, beware. This area is dangerous. And the joke Melanie would say, like, when I left the door every day, was like, don't get shot today. <laughs> and, you know, it was funny, but it wasn't funny because it could happen at any moment in this city. And it got to the point where we both felt so uncomfortable that we both ended up leaving New Orleans and uh, eventually both living in New York. And as kind of time passes and friendships kind of come in and out, um, we didn't stay as in touch, but we were close. So fast forward a couple of years later, and I'm in Brooklyn in Gowanus Canal in this like loft on a Superfund site. And there's a group of people kind of watching television. And we're watching Katrina pass through New Orleans. And with a group of people that had never been to New Orleans before. And what they're seeing on the screen is really essentially the poverty that is kind of all pockmarked throughout New Orleans. 
and they had never seen anything in their life like that. And years before, I had, you know, World Trade Center, major national tragedy. Even if you've never been to New York, you understand that New York has skyscrapers and the World Trade Center is kind of an iconic image. And this image on the television was completely foreign, but no less tragic. And I felt this real conflicted feeling because I felt like I know, I know that, like I know that street, I know that corner, like I've seen that building and I hadn't really done anything with it. It was just like a year of my life and I moved to New York and I felt this real sense of aloneness in this room as the only person that had some connection to a place that was being um, destroyed. So I couldn't wait that night to just call Melanie. Um, and we talked on the phone and she didn't really yet net know where Mr. Joe was or with where Miss Leotha was. She assumed they got out okay, but she really wasn't sure. And we kind of talked about like everything that we'd seen on TV and everything was happening. And you know, I'm hardwired to go to like a very, very, very dark, depressed place so far that it then becomes humor. And you choose your people and your friends and Melanie had the same kind of hardwiring. So after we had kind of discussed what we'd been seeing on TV, she said, Terrence, do you remember that time you were in your bedroom and you kind of were like half asleep, half awake, and Mr. Joe knocked on your window? And it was this one time that Mr. Joseph said, hey, you got a little buddy in there with you. And I was like, a little buddy with me? And I didn't, I was disoriented, I was sleeping. I was like, yeah, a little buddy. And I just look up at my cushions, and there's a mouse just kind of like tucked in a little like pocket. He's like, oh, a little cute fellow. And he just lets out this giddy laugh. And I just pop up the, the, the sheets because I'm so frightened by what a mouse could do to me. And... Uh, <laughs> And he's like, he's, like, he's like, don't kill it, don't kill it. It could be your friend, it could be your pet. Um, and I just remember saying, like, you're my friend, Mr. Joe. You're my friend. And she just laughed hysterically at that memory. And she's like, I can't believe you came down and lived with me in Newton Street for a year. He's like, she's, she's, and then she says, the ends of the phone call, stay golden, white bitch. And uh, thank you. That was Terrence Mickey with Another Country. This is The Bear on KCRW Berlin, and tonight we're hearing stories on the theme, Alone. What it feels like to be a fish out of water. The final storyteller on tonight's program is Raj Kumar. His story is called The Five Kilometer. I did run five kilometers, and... uh... I'm still catching on my breath, so I'm not sure how good this is going to go, but I'm going to try. Um, I didn't love running always, um, especially not in Singapore. And unlike Germany, the month of January is not that special in Singapore. <laughs> it's hot, humid, and sunny, like all the year round. <laughs> and there's not much going on. Um, but 2001, January, was really special for me. I had just finished my junior college, um, high school as you call it here, grade 12. And I was waiting for my university. And I had this time while most of my friends in Singapore had gone to serve the military. So in Singapore, if you're a Singaporean, you have to serve two years of military. Um, And I wasn't, so luckily I didn't have to do that. Now to serve this military, they had to go through all this 
two years of training and run twice a week, five kilometers, and I hated running. Anyway, so here I am between trying to find the university or have all this time in the world, and I'd hate running. So what do I do? I start looking for jobs. Now, most people at the age of 18 would try to look for jobs in a grocery store, um, stacking boxes in a warehouse, but I was better than that. I was special. <laughs> and I wanted something, a job which was out of my league. So I started applying to all the banks, to the legal consultants, and did all that stuff. I sent 100 applications, and I just waited. But one fine morning, I was woken up at 6 o'clock. It's 2001, and this Nokia 3310, those weird ringtones, if you remember. Really scary. Woke me up 6 o'clock in the morning, and I'm like, the, the voice on the other side said, hello, Mr. Dua. And I said, yes. And my voice was a little deep, probably because I was sleeping, but the other part, nobody has ever addressed me as Mr. Dua. <laughs> so um, I said, yes. It's like, I'm Miss Lim, calling from TKGS. We have an emergency. We've lost, we've, we've, uh, one of our teachers has an accident, and we want you to come to our school and start today at 7.30. Can you? And I'm like, okay. A little confused. Um, before I could say anything, she just started telling me the address. And at this point in time, there's so many questions popping up, but I don't want to lose this address, so I keep repeating this address in my mind. And I forgot to ask her anything, and she keeps the phone down. And I'm thinking, even before I could think, I just pick up my shirt, and I know this is a job. It's probably about teaching. And I, 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 the first thing I found, <laughs> I, I rushed to the taxi, and I'm in the taxi. Now, in my mind, it's all going on. What could this be about? It's probably teaching, probably primary school. Who would I teach? How would I do it? And all these doubts coming in my mind. But then... As I put my mind and I start looking for inspiration, my mind goes to this scene from um, this film called Dead Poet Society. Robin Williams, you know? This charismatic, energetic teacher standing on this desk and trying to impress all the students. And he picks up this one student, Todd Anderson, a shy, quiet little guy, makes him say this barbaric yop three times and he becomes a hero all of a sudden. That was my strategy. That was my inspiration. I'm gonna find a little quiet guy, make him speak, and there you go, I'm the hero. <laughs> and as I'm thinking through this, my taxi lands in the front porch, and um, there's this middle-aged Chinese lady comes rushing, white hair. She says, hi, I'm Mrs. Lim, I'm the principal of the school, I called you, thanks for coming, Mr. Dua. Again, Mr. Dua. Um, Tony had an accident yesterday, and you would be his replacement teacher. He taught many classes, we don't have any replacements, so would you be, kind enough to replace him for five days. Now, I didn't have a chance to look at all the applications. Yours was the last email, so I just called you. <laughs> and she was in a rush, so she just kind of dragged me to the staff room. Let me, we've got, we, we were getting late. Let me give you some stuff, and let's get started. So she gave me a bunch of files, a couple of books, and Tony's roster, and a couple of forms to sign. And as I was skimming through those forms to sign, I found a little mistake. My date of birth was 1972 instead of 1982. And now I knew what was going on. And before I could say that, she dragged me out. And she was rushing through this corridor. It was, uh, it was a massive, uh, it was a colonial architecture, a British building with you know, massive pillars, doors after doors on the left side, 
uh, probably classrooms, and they were pretty quiet. You could hear the sound at the end of the corridor as, we were, as she was walking fast. The sound grew louder. And on the other side, there were pillars and beams and sunlight falling through. And all these questions coming through, what am I going to do, who, who, who am I going to teach, what's, what's happening, and all these things popping in my head, and it's bursting, and suddenly I look through these beams, there's a signboard arching over the entrance, which says TKGS, Tanjong Katong Girls Secondary School. And I stopped. Girls Secondary School? And here I was 18. And there was pinned up silence. I'd lost Mr. Lim, and I just kind of dragged myself into that classroom. And there's a sea of 40 girls, pretty much like this, in light green blouse, green pinafore, staring at me. <laughs> and as I looked through the room, trying to, my timid smile couldn't sustain those piercing eyes. And Ms. Lim said, while Tony's has an accident, this is Mr. Dua, your replacement. And as soon as she said that, everybody laughed. And she said, be nice, and left. <laughs> and there I was, in a sea of 40 girls, all alone, like a fish out of water. <laughs> now, at this point in time, I did what the best of best teachers would do. So I asked. My idea was just to make them read a chapter. So I said, what chapter are we on? Or what book are we reading? And somebody said in the front seat, biology. I said, okay, give me the book. So I picked up the book. What chapter? And the girl in the back end said, 13. Now, I should have known this better. When somebody in front says something, it's serious. When somebody in the back says, it's about to hit the fan. So I flipped the chapter, chapter 13, and this image or picture of big penis staring at me. And the chapter said, reproductive systems. And the girl smiled and smirked. And I knew at that point in time, I was dead meat. And just as these thoughts were going on, another girl walks up with her belt loosened up in a pinafore, something stuffed in and holding it like this as if pregnant and said, Mr. Deep, Mr. Dua, what happened here? I don't know. There's something wrong. Did I get pregnant? <laughs> and the other one said, are you the one? <laughs> this was a time that I couldn't take in and I knew I had to escape. Luckily, there was a bell and everybody rushed out. I rushed out, running across that same corridor, thinking through my mind, okay, this is where I hit the eject button and I need to go. I need to tell that it was not 72, it's 82. I'm 18, not 28. I need to do something about it. And just as I was rushing through, I heard a couple of teachers talk. And one said, oh, I know Tony has an accident. I know it's pretty bad, but I'm sure he's pretty happy. Um, I don't know how he faces these girls every day. They're geez, brats. I would never have these girls like that. I don't know what they're thinking. And just at that moment, I realized that I did have something common in those girls. It was that sense of fun, sense of mischievousness that I had at the age of 18, that sense to challenge the authority, which got me here to try something new, that it was, it, it was the reason that I was here. And I made a decision to walk back and be there. So I turn back, and I go to the staff room, and I, I try to look at the roster, Tony's roster, and see what's coming up next. And I look at 10 o'clock, 
Tony's timetable, PE, physical education, five kilometer. <laughs> that was the first time I ran my five kilometer. I had a great time. And today was the last time I ran, and I had a great time as well. So, thank you. That was Raj Kumar with the five kilometer. Our final story for this evening's show. These true personal stories were recorded live at The Bear on June 14th in Prenzlauer Berg. This is the second part in a two-part show, so if you want to hear more fish-out-of-water stories, check out our website, kcrwberlin.com slash thebear. The Bear was created by Diane Nyman and inspired by The Moth. You heard live music in this evening's show from Felix Kummel. Our show's theme is I Need Love, remixed by DJ Spectre. If you would like to tell a story or attend the next Bear Storytelling evening, go to kcrwberlin.com slash thebear for more information. I'm Sylvia Cunningham. Thanks for tuning in. 